So, so good to be with you. Uh, I, um, I'm, I'm really grateful for Christine's message last night. I, I don't know about you, but preachers need to be preached at. And we really do. I mean, how often do we allow someone to get in our business? I mean, we need this. And that's one of the reasons I love coming to conferences like this. And I love having prophetic voices speak into us. You know, there's lots of different ways when you come to a conference, I hear different kinds, and I'm always filtering it through certain lenses. But I thought last night, I said, you know, I was sitting on the front row, I was listening, taking notes and listening, and I said, Lord, thank you for sending in a, pro- a prophetic voice to us to wake us up. You know, because we, sometimes we get busy doing ministry that we forget why we're doing ministry. And, and we're good at it. Most of us are good at doing ministry. That's why we still have a job, right? We can do the stuff. We can get through the day. We can make a Sunday happen. But somewhere along the way, we can lose our heart and lose the, the real motivation and, and the real revelation of why we started on the journey in the first place. And I, last night for me, was, it reminded me that when I was 23 years old, when the Lord really told me, Brady, you're going to be a pastor, I tried to negotiate my way out of that. You know, I said, Lord, I'll do anything. I'll charge hell with a water pistol. I'll do anything. But don't make me be a pastor. You know, I didn't want to be a pastor. I never had an ambition to be a pastor. But the Lord at 23 years old erected my heart and, and called me to be a pastor while I was serving in the streets of my city in Shreveport, Louisiana, during a time in that city's history where it was one of the top five most violent cities in the, in the country per capita, tons of gang violence. And so we went into this neighborhood, and, and before incarnational ministry was cool, we were doing incarnational ministry. We didn't know that. We didn't, well, I wish I had known that then. I could have been a lot buzzier right now, you know? But we were just in it. We just said, I'm going to take these 20 houses. My wife and I were young married couples, so we just said, we'll take these 20 houses, and this is going to become our family. And we were, uh, I'm a white man, I don't know if you noticed that or not, but this was the only, uh, the, we were the only white people that had been in that neighborhood, probably, except the mailman. And uh, it was very violent. People stayed away from it. It was a very segregated part of the country. And uh, Pam and I just made up our mind. We were going to be friends and family, and we were going to take care of the people in that neighborhood if they wanted us to. If they didn't want us to, we wouldn't bother them. Well, I ended up doing their weddings and funerals and going to the hospital. I became the pastor of those 20 houses for five years. And in fact, one of the biggest heartbreaks I had when I had to leave that city to go take another job in Texas was leaving those 20 families. And so last night just reminded me of why I got into pastoral ministry in in the first place. And certainly had no ambition to be a, a pastor of a large church. I just wanted to, to follow God. You know, really, we all started out pretty pure like that, right? I just want to follow Jesus. I want to be obedient. I want to do what he wants me to do. And that's, that's how we started. Let's pray that's how we finish. Amen? Can we just agree? That's us finish that way as well. I want you to open up your Bible this morning. I want to share just a few minutes with something uh, out of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Uh, this message is called The Harvest is Plentiful. And I was reminded, the reason I chose this title, I know it's kind of a, you know, it's an easy title when you read Luke chapter 10, because that's exactly what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 10, that the harvest is plentiful. So I got to tell you a quick story here, right? I've never pastored outside the Bible Belt until I came here. So I pastored in Louisiana and Texas. I helped start Gateway Church with Robert Morris and had just a joy of, just a really joyful time there with him for seven years. And then I came here in August of 07. And it was the, really the first time, and a lot of people have this misconception about Colorado Springs that because we're like, uh, you know, the Vatican of the West, we've been called, uh, we have all these mega ministries here. But truth be told, we're a very secular, postmodern, post-church world in Colorado Springs. It's not the Bible Belt, uh, despite the fact that there are a lot of ministries here. It's not at all the Bible Belt. 
Well, I didn't really realize that. Uh, and, and so along the way, I've had to relearn some things about ministry because of the context of where I'm pastoring right now in Colorado Springs. So just as I, three Sundays ago, I got a really clear picture of my congregation like I'd never gotten before, all right? So three Sundays ago, my office is on the second floor, and so I don't want to creep you out or anything, but I can see the parking lot from my office. I'm not staring at you, but oftentimes on Sunday, I pray for the people that are walking in the church. I watch them walk in, uh, pray over them, ask the Lord just to give me eyes to see, ears to hear. What's God? What are you doing in their hearts, Lord? (laughs) So uh, three Sundays ago, this sharp young couple, I mean, you know, the sharp couple, well-dressed, professional-looking, and they, had, they were like uh, probably 29, 30 years old, man, woman, and in between them, they both had the hand of like a three- or four-year-old little girl, a real cute little girl. So the three of them, classic American family, right? Father, little girl, mom, all three holding hands, skipping along, really happy, sunshine, beautiful Colorado day. They're excited about church. The difference was that dad had a joint in his hand. He was trying to finish it before he got to the front door. And I was watching this whole thing play out. And he's burning it. He's trying to hold his daughter's hand. He's dragging it hard, getting all of the stuff inside of him, passes it over to mom. Mom's trying to help him finish this thing off. So she's dragging it hard. I mean, just getting all of it. in. And so I'm watching this, this family dynamic, passing the joint over the kid's head. The daughter's going, you know, Marijuana everywhere. So I don't know if you know this, but marijuana is legal in Colorado. Like the Baptists buy beer in Illinois or the Methodists buy wine and wherever, everywhere. So it's now, it's like, it's, that's legal here. So I watched this family. Now, this is, I, wasn't, I wasn't spying on them. It just, this all happened by random uh, choice, all right? So it was about the same time, but I, I needed to get down here, right? The service is about to start. So I get my stuff together, and I come down, and sure enough, when I walk down the steps in the, in the lobby, there they are checking their four-year-old into the children's ministry. So you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this couple already. <laughs> I really am. I'm thinking they're going to go to the cafe next, right? They got to get something to eat after all that. <laughs> now, don't ask me how I know that, all right? I don't know. I've just been reading. I've read a lot of articles, all right? So I'm thinking they're headed over to get a panini. They got to get some chips. They didn't. They came right into worship. So I'm right in behind them. Like, right? And they sit right there behind the sound booth. And opening song, they're lost in worship. Like they just are just totally lost in worship. I mean, going far in worship. And so I sit over here. This is where I normally sit on Sunday. So I had a beeline view at them. Like I'm kind of staring at them like, are they going to fall asleep? Are they going to chant? I don't know what they're going to do, right? They totally engaged in the service. Eyes bloodshot, eyes kind of dilated. That's when I realized the harvest is plentiful. They're here. They're right here with us. They're, they're among us. It doesn't bother me. I didn't, feel, I didn't feel any sense of judgment against them. Now, what I did feel was, I like, you know, I'm a dad, so I'm thinking, I hope that they're able to drive home. You know, hope I felt a little unsafe, like, I uh, hope that they are not, you know, so inebriated, intoxicated, or whatever. What's the term? High, right? High, jacked up, that they can't drive home. So I preached extra long that day to sober them up. I just want you to know that's why I did that. I thought, if I could preach an extra half hour, I'm, I'm doing this for the sake of the family. So uh, children's team did not think that was funny, but I did. I had a lot to say that day. All right, now go to Luke 10, all right? 
I want to read these first two passages. This is such a beautiful conversation that Jesus is having here with his disciples. I love the, you know, Luke especially is such a personal writer of the stories of Jesus. Luke gets into the personal nature of Jesus and reveals, I think Luke reveals his personality in such a beautiful way. I love reading the book of Luke. And Luke says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two. Would you please underline that because I'm going to refer back to that in just a moment. A lot of us overlook and a lot of us may have uh, theological suspicions of why Jesus sent people out two by two. I'm going to give you something else to consider about the two by two idea later on. But would you underline that in your text or in your digital text? They sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place. Now, I want you to underline that, too. This is such a fascinating description that Luke gives us. Two by two to every town and place. I guess they didn't have Barna studies back then to tell them where they should go. They did not have this ability to say, well, this is the good place. This is the growing suburb. This is the declining suburb. This is where the wealthy people are going. This is where the mall where you, people used to go, so we don't want to plant over there. But this is the mall where everybody's now going, so we want to plant here. No, Jesus didn't discriminate. And I want you to hear this today. Church planters, listen to me. The only reason you should ever plant a church in a location is because Jesus sends you there. In fact, that will be the only reason you will stay there no matter where you go. The only reason you will succeed and stay in a place is because Jesus sent you there. If you go because the vibe is good or because the demographics fit your demographic or if you go there because the money seems to be there, listen, the, the enemy knows how to discourage believers if they're not sent there by God. But the enemy has no weapon to discourage you if you have been sent to a place by God. He cannot discourage you. You will plant your feet there and establish yourself there. And you will be willing to stay there if God sends you. If God has not sent you there, then you will be easily discouraged and easily displaced. And I have watched this play out more than I care to tell you about with church planting. And I'm just throwing that. This is not a church planting message. I just felt this prophetic sense to share that with somebody here. You're wrestling with or not to go to a place. Listen, here's how you know where you're supposed to go. God sends you there. And it's confirmed by other people. All right, so this is why Jesus said he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In fact, there's not a lot of people who want to get into the messy business of dealing with lost people. That's just true. I want to say this to you very clearly. I, what we just showed you was a beautiful romantic video of Mary's home. That's not romantic to me. That's messy. It's messy what we're doing. We've already been messy with people. They're angry boyfriends that have already come around the facility. They want to get to their girlfriends. We won't let them. We already have clashes between moms and their kids where two or more people are gathered together. There's going to be a fuss, and we've seen it. Listen, sometimes we paint a way too romantic picture of what ministry really looks like, and then when people see what ministry looks like in reality, they run from it because it's messy, it's difficult, it's perseverance. Is required. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, that's a beautiful, those first two scriptures, I love the first two scriptures. 
I think those are great. I think we put that on our fridge, pray that every day. I think that's a great bumper sticker. I don't do bumper stickers, but I think that's a good thing. However, don't ignore verse 3. And we are notorious in America for taking the really sweet things of Scripture and, and separating those from the context of Scripture and ignoring the full counsel of Scripture. Do you agree with that? I'm not being hard on you. I'm, 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 I'm as prone to do it as you are. So let's look at verse 3, okay? Verse 3. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the food chain. But if you're a lamb... You don't want to be among wolves. Have you ever, I, I, one of my favorite shows on, I think it's the History Channel. I get them wrong, it's Discovery or History. Discovery History, History Discovery Channel, I don't know whichever. Anyway, it's called Mountain Men. Anybody watch Mountain Men with me? Anybody, come on, three of you, confess it. All right. They just had a wolf attack on Tom's farm. You everybody watch Tom? Tom's my favorite. Tom's farm, a wolf attack. And these wolves, they rip everything. They don't, they leave nothing there. In fact, Tom, my favorite character, he's about 80 years old, old mountain man, he said, you can tell this is the wolf. And the guy beside him goes, how? All the blood? He goes, no, there's nothing left. They eat everything. So, I mean, when, so when Jesus says, hey, by the way, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, pray to the Lord of the harvest, send them out into the harvest field. Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now we get a clear idea of why the workers are few. That clears the whole thing up for me now. Now I understand why the workers are so few. Because we're sending us out like lambs among wolves. Why did Jesus have to say that? Come on, Jesus. Don't you not know how hard it is to motivate people right now? To, to prompt people to get involved at church? We're already wrestling with a lot of things here, Jesus. You didn't have to throw that in like lambs among wolves. About 12 years ago, I was sitting in a meeting, and I'm not name dropping, I'm just telling you about a meeting I was in, with who I believe is one of the patriarchs of our modern day faith in America. His name's Jack Hayford. I really believe he carries that kind of spiritual weight, at least in my life. But Jack Hayford was sitting in a meeting with me one day uh, with a group of us, not just me, but a handful of us. And I, he leaned back, and if you know Pastor Jack, he's such a, he's such a, an academic, he's a cerebral man, but he's very thoughtful, he's very prophetic. He doesn't say things he doesn't mean, he's not impulsive. And I, so I, I just find him to be really full of wisdom. And we were talking about church and planting and, and why church was so, why it was so hard to see people come to Christ. And he looked at me and he said, he just leaned back in his chair and he said, and it's almost like he was caught up. You know, remember when Paul was caught up in the third heaven? This is all it felt like for me. It's the closest thing I've ever encountered with this. He leans back in his chair. I'll never forget where the room we were sitting in. He says, there will come a day, brothers and sisters, when there will be two streams flowing in our country. And right now, those streams are not flowing so strongly that you cannot have a foot in both streams. But they're flowing in opposite directions. Make no, he, I remember he's got long pointed fingers. He says... Make no mistake about it. These streams are flowing in opposite directions. But right now, he said, it's possible for most of the people in our church to have a foot in both streams and not be swept away by either stream. He said, but there will come a day when those streams will be running so fast and so strong in opposite directions 
that it will be impossible for our people to have a foot in both streams. And they will have to choose on that day which stream they're going to be swept away by. He said, then I, and I love how he says it again, make no mistake about it. You will be swept away by one of those streams. And I just remembered that 12 years ago. I caught that. I went, I mean, I wrote it down. I, when I went out for my prayer walks, I prayed it. I, I, when I came here, I began to see it because we're at the tip of the spear on a lot of these social issues. A lot of the cultural issues seem to happen in Colorado and spread out. You know, we, so we're, we've been on the forefront of violence. We've had violence here on our campus. We've had legalized marijuana. We're at the forefront of the same-sex marriage issue. So a lot of the, of the cultural clashes that are happening are right here in Colorado. And so as a pastor of a large church in Colorado... We have been at the tip of the spear on these issues for a long time. How to deal with the poor, how to take care of the immigrant who's coming across our border illegally, yes, but how do we care for them? How do we, how do we contend and, and share a better story than the story of marijuana? How can we celebrate the beautiful idea of biblical marriage without giving up on what the scriptures say about marriage? All of these issues are at the forefront of what we're talking about all the time. But every time I get into one of those discussions or I'm asked, I keep seeing that visual picture. I'm a visual learner, so visual things help me. Make no mistake about it. There will be two streams, and they'll be running really fast in opposite directions. I'm reminded of what Jesus said. He said, Jesus said, listen, uh, narrow is the way that leads to life. Narrow is the path. Few will find it, but broad is the path that leads to destruction. A lot of people will find it easy to waddle that path. I mean, Jesus used these parallel terms as well when he's describing the choice that we have to make. Why are we losing ground? The question I want to ask today in our few minutes together is why are we losing ground and what can we do about it? And here's what I want you to realize. Every Sunday, this is where I stand and preach to my congregation on Sunday, and it's full. We have a very diverse, Colorado Springs is a very diverse group because of our military culture. We have people from almost every nation here. We have people from almost every, all 50 states who have come to new life at some point. They're involved here because of our military culture, the, the very transient nature of our city. And so I'm not preaching to church people all the time. In fact, very rarely am I preaching to, you know, people that grew up in church. Uh, I'm preaching to people who are, are, are skeptics. They're cynics. They're seekers. So a lot of them are committed a lot of them are cultural Christians. I think we're seeing more and more convictional Christians come up in our church, and I'm grateful for that. Convictional Christians versus cultural Christians. And I am grateful cultural Christianity is getting swept away. I, quite honestly, it's going to make uh, Christianity actually very pure now in, in America. It's actually going to cost us something to follow Jesus, and I don't think that's a bad thing. In fact, I think Jesus promised that if you follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. And so we've not, it's, been, it's been possible in America to follow Jesus without any cross-bearing. But that day has come to an end now. Now, if you want to follow Jesus, you literally have to take up his cross and follow him. You have to take it up. Take up your cross and follow Christ. Here's the thing that I want you to remember today. One of the things, why are we losing ground? And, and Glenn touched on it so beautifully yesterday. In fact, when he said it, I said, if Glenn preaches my message, I'm going to be so upset. But it wasn't. He actually set my message up beautifully, and I appreciated that. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy with him. So um, here, here's the thing. Most people do not feel lost when they come to your church. Even the, the lost people don't feel lost anymore. 
this has happened in, after, our, after our weekend services, I go right through that door right there and there's usually 100 guests every Sunday here and I, I spend an hour or so out there greeting. The, I stay out there till the last guest is gone on Sunday. So I'm really tired. I leave here about 1.30 on Sundays after standing out and greeting guests and there's a long line of people. I'm grateful to meet every one of them. I love hearing their stories. <laughs> I got to tell you this one story, okay? This happened a, a year or so ago, last summer. And this girl walks up to me, and I've, I know as a pastor, there's two things, you know, you know, one of the things you never ask is, unless you're absolutely certain you don't mention that the woman's pregnant, you know, you've you got to be absolutely certain, like nine months certain, okay? So, because um, we've all made that mistake before, you know, I'm not pregnant. All right, so anyway, so she walks up, and she's obviously pregnant, all right? So I said, and she's with a man, and there's a three-year-old, two or three-year-old in between them, and I said, hey, how, good to meet you guys. Where are you from? And, and I had mentioned in my sermon that I had spoken a message at a church in another part of the country. And she said, that, that's, that's the church I used to attend. And he said, in fact, we met there. And I said, awesome. We, we live here now. I said, well, grateful. Uh, that's a great church. And she said, yeah, we met there. And I said, oh, so and, you're, and you guys are, are you a couple? I've learned that. Are you a couple? Yes. Are you, are you married, boyfriend, girlfriend, just know each other? No, no, we're married. And, and, and this is our second child. I said, oh, awesome. I said, so is, is this, whose child, is this your, is this your daughter? Or, and she goes, no, it's our daughter. In fact, he proposed to me on the very day that my water broke. Like really excited about telling me all the details of that. Loud in Guest Central. He proposed to me on the same day my water broke, but this is our second baby together. But we just got married. So I went, awesome, awesome. No judgment, not upset with them. I'm glad they're, I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they feel welcome. But it, I, I told, went home and told Pam, I said, number one, I don't, I don't ever remember a time when I was growing up that I would have been that loud about that. Like that happy and excited to share those many details. And there was no embarrassment, none at all. Like this is perfectly normal behavior. You know, let's try things out. You know, and so the culture, it, more and more I'm reminded, people don't have any sense of right or wrong as far as, you know, biblical values, biblical norms have been swept away by the culture. And so we have a new set now of ideas we better learn to confront. I mean, most of the people believe that biblical morality is outdated. And understand, when you're preaching scriptures, the scriptures that I believe in, I have not waned at one ounce on my conviction that the scriptures are trustworthy and for teaching, for exhortation, that they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. I've not waned on any of that. I am very aware, though, that I am preaching to a group of people who don't believe that. We're living in a progressive age now where people believe that there are some parts of scripture, especially the parts where it talks about the poor and uh, income you know, disparities, and you can kind of pick and choose what you want to see the Bible say, but then there's some other things, especially social issues and family issues, where Americans especially, that we've kind of grown past this ancient document of the Bible. And so you can't come in with the assumption that everyone holds the same value that you do with the Bible, because they don't. They don't, they just don't believe the Bible the way you believe the Bible. So it makes me, I told someone that, who does pastor in the Bible Belt, I said, I'm telling longer stories about simpler ideas. I have, to, I have to preach deeper and longer on ideas that I could once just pass over and assume that people understood. Now I make no assumptions about the beliefs that people have about the scriptures. We cannot make any assumptions anymore. 
And if you are making assumptions, then you're probably uh, shooting over about half of your congregation. They do not come in with the same biblical convictions we do. In fact, most of them uh, are either nuns or duns. This is the two biggest growing areas are nuns and duns. Nuns meaning they've had no religious training at all. I can't tell you how many people I meet in Guest Central at New Life Church. New Life Church, Colorado Springs, Vatican of the West, where they, I remember standing here one Sunday, and it was this, this section, and I said, hey, you know, remember, you know, in, in the book of Acts, when the Stephen was taken outside, and Stephen was stoned, I had, like, headlight looks, like, the Bible talks about that. Stephen got stoned in the Bible? And I realized, they don't know what I'm talking about. I said, not that stoned. He was hit by rocks until he died a violent, bloody death. Oh. I can see people go, oh, man, it's tragic. Tragic. <laughs> They're nuns. I call them nuns. They didn't know that story. And if we make a passing reference to Noah and the ark, they go, what? You, what? Noah who? What? The guy that plays for the Chicago Bulls, Noah? No, no, not, not Joachim Noah. I'm talking about, no, Noah. They, you, just, you, can't, you can't assume things anymore. And so I, I know that's frustrating for us who we just have grown up with these stories. I, I want to challenge you when you preach to go back to really, and it's going to frustrate some of your members who are going to come up to you later and say, man, we just are longing for deeper teaching, man. We need deeper teaching. Listen, we can't assume that those are people who have lost their compassion for people who don't know what they know. And so sometimes my preaching is, I mean, I know I can go, I can go five miles deeper than I go on Sunday. It's in me. I read it. I studied it. I know it. But it's not being compassionate to teach it like that right now in this setting. I'm trying, and I do bring deep things into my sermons, but I'm trying so hard to gather everyone under the umbrella so I can talk to everyone at one time. And do not be, and, and so there's two, there's two things here. Don't water down your preaching so much that you frustrate the mature. And we're going to talk about this later in our breakout. But, but don't teach over the head of the very people who you're trying to throw a life rope. You're throwing the life rope over their head. You throw the life raft to them. You throw the rope to them while encouraging those who are already on the boat. But I'm trying to get more people on the boat. I'm not trying to discourage. I'm trying to equip the people on the boat to sail with me. At the same time, I'm trying to throw a life raft out to the people who are drowning. And it's, it's, all that's happening in a sermon, and it's 30 minutes. And so the people who want deeper teaching are frustrated that I keep ignoring them to throw life rafts out to the, them. And then these people are upset when I turn my back on them to talk about the people who are on, already on deck with me. So both those things are going to happen. Don't be frustrated, okay? You have to do both. And we'll talk about that in our breakout in just a moment. All right. Here's our options today. I'm, I'm, I've had like 20 minutes left, and I'm going to tell you two options. Because I see, I'm seeing this play out more and more uh, among pastors. And I want, I want to challenge some thinking in here today, okay? So we're going to get very, I'm going to challenge you on some stuff today that I'm being challenged for first, Okay. I think we have two choices. We can either rail against the darkness and preach these fiery sermons calling people into culture wars, or we can realign our strategies and see people come to Christ. Railing against the darkness and calling people into culture wars is not helping right now. It's not productive. 
Preaching the truth, yes. Preaching the scriptures, always. Preaching with conviction, absolutely. But it, it speaks more not to methodology as to motives. What am I trying to accomplish on Sunday? I'm trying to call people to, I'm trying to call the mature to walk in a more mature way, and I'm trying to call the lost home. I'm trying to do all those things. Not one for the other, not one for the sake of the other. I'm trying to do both. And I want to, so I want to share with you four little things today, four big things in my mind, of strategies that we are talking about constantly, things that we're doing on purpose at New Life, purposeful things that we're doing to call people to Christ at New Life Church. And some of it may surprise you. Some of it's not, you may not even assume. And I know we got New Lifers sitting here today, and I probably need to preach this message to my church to let them know why I'm doing certain things. Because I don't spend a ton of time telling my own church why I'm doing things. I, I may assume too much. All right, number one, the first thing, if you're really serious like I am to seeing this harvest come home right now, Number one is we must be willing to be the minority working the, minor, the margins of our culture. I think Christianity, if you study church history, for the last 2,000 years, Christianity has always been at its purest, strongest, and most effective, has been most effective when we were the minority working the margins of the culture. We look more like Jesus we did more work for Jesus, more fruit for Jesus, when we were the minority working the margins of our culture. So many stories I could tell. I mean, if you study church history, the third and fourth century, the, when the plagues were ravaging Europe, ravaging parts of Europe, whole cities were dying. It was the Christians that went in while everyone else was fleeing. And the beautiful part of that story is that there were Christians who died. They caught the plague. It was a very infectious disease, so Christians were Catching the disease and dying, yes. But what happened is they begin to build up antibodies to the disease too. So it, it, after a certain amount of time, the only people who could literally go next to those who were sick were the Christians who had built up the antibodies. And this is what I believe right now. We are so, we have so separated ourselves from the toxicity of our culture that we have no antibodies to send. So when we're against it, we feel repulsed. Therefore, we're not near them. Listen very carefully. There are social boundaries in every city where we're, every city represented here. There are social boundaries where Christians have got to learn to cross. And uh, I didn't expect a big cheer there. But I pastored in a town of 15,000 people. Hereford, Texas was 15,000 people in West Texas. I had a church of 50 people. I know what I'm talking about. I pastored there. And even in that little tiny town out in West Texas, there were social boundaries where the church could not cross. They didn't know how to cross it. And they, I remember the first year I was there because I had spent my time in the inner city as a white young man in very black inner city trying to break down the racial barriers of my city, trying to build some bridges. From an early, early time, that's all I wanted to do. So I moved to Hereford, Texas. There was a place four blocks from my church where all the migrant, immigrant, illegals, undocumented workers who picked the, 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 the food there, they lived there. It was kind of the, there, over there is where they live. So I remember getting up in front of my little church in Hereford, Texas, population of 15,000, the very first Thanksgiving I was there, and I said, hey, we're going to give out 100 turkey dinners. Everybody went, yeah, awesome. And we're going to that neighborhood to give them away. <gasps> You could hear literally, an, it's five blocks from our church. Five blocks. 
I remember there were people who had lived there all their lives, who had gone to that church for 20 years, who had never been in that neighborhood. They're five blocks away. I said, they probably don't have a full Thanksgiving dinner. We live five blocks from the neighborhood where all the, the, the immigrants are working. Let's go there. I remember getting up. I remember that Thursday morning. It was literally like we were going to death row. And that we were like, it's like we had, I, had, I had carried them into the enemy stronghold to leave them unprotected. It was, that was the feeling I had. I, I remember gathering in the parking lot of my little church and going, I was so excited. I'm like, yeah, we're going to take turkeys into the neighborhood five blocks away, a neighborhood we've never been to. And they said, are you, Brady, are you sure that we should do this? They were, fear, they were fearful. There was, they had built up in their mind these ideas that somehow something horrible was going to go wrong. You know what the biggest thing was? That most of them didn't speak English. So we had to like use sign language, hand language to tell them this food is yours. None of us could speak the language. But it was such a beautiful, I remember people sobbing when we gave them these turkeys. They had lived five blocks from our church and we had never ever met them. And we took turkeys that day just to say hi. Listen, this is when the church is at its best. When we are the ones who will cross over the boundary that no one else will cross over. When we will go to the place. Mary's home, the video you just saw. That's in the most violent neighborhood in our city. It is by far the most violent. Sand Creek. Ask any police officer. Most violent neighborhood, Sand Creek. That's what it is. It's, there it is. So I hope, maybe if you're here, while, before you go, drive down there. Go in the daytime. Drive down there. <laughs> I'm being serious. Go down there. Take a right on airport off Academy. It's way down there. Most new lifers have never been passed within five miles of that place. We just had an open house there. And one of my favorite stories, I kept hearing these stories. I've never been down here. I've never seen this place. It's 25 minutes from here. We're not a giant city. We're 600,000 people. We're not that big here, okay? We drove down there. You take a right. When you take a right, the police just found a dead body catty-cornered from our, our property, from a drug deal gone bad a few weeks ago. On the right, when you get there, you come over a little hill, there is this spectacular apartment complex, incarnational living happening right there in the middle of this really difficult neighborhood. Now, when we first bought this apartment complex, it was infested with asbestos. It was a mess. We got it really cheap because of that, though. The good news is we got it cheap. The bad news is it was a mess. But we didn't have a lot of money. So we bought something cheap and renovated it and paid cash for it, by the way, through a series of miracles. I have no idea how it happened. I really do not know how it all happened. But when we got down there and started renovating the building, they, we, we kept having people break into the building, stealing all our copper pipes, stealing stuff out of it. So in a genius move, Matthew Ayers, who you saw in the video, started an Adopt-A-Block program where we gathered once a month on a Saturday and went to two or about 100 to 200 some houses around that neighborhood, started meeting them, giving them groceries and introducing ourselves to them. Within a few months, all of the crime stopped at Mary's home. All of it. We, we haven't had a break-in. Nobody bothers us anymore. In fact, they look out for us now. I mean, we just, nobody bothers it. Why? Because we told them what we were doing there. And we got to know them. We learned their face. We knew their stories. We cared about them. And suddenly now, because we came across some boundaries, we were willing to cross into the margins. We, we went out to the outskirts of the city. 
Suddenly, the Lord began to breathe back on us, favor on us. We have, listen, I, I, I have, I'm telling you this. Pastors, listen to me. When the Lord spoke to me, and this, I, I know this is going to motivate you, all right? It's bad motivation, but I know it's going to motivate you. Five years ago, we were dead broke here. We were broke. We were laying off people. I know what that feels like. That's a bad day. But the Lord spoke to me and said, I will get you out of debt if you will take the money and reinvest it back into the city. Okay? Deal. And we were $26 million in debt. $150,000 a month for our mortgage payment. Yeah. Just add zeros. It doesn't matter. If, you're, if your mortgage payment is $1,500 a month, and you're, but you get $1,000 a month in the offering, that's what it feels like when you're $150,000 in mortgage and your offering is $50,000. It doesn't matter. Just zeros after that. It's the same stress. I promise you. All right. We began by faith to challenge our people to get us out of debt so we could invest in our city. Today, we're $13.7 million, $13 million in debt, and Mary's home is debt-free. I have no idea how that happened. I have no idea. And here's what the Lord said. Here's what the Lord said. I'm just trying to help you with this. The Lord said, if you will give to the poor, you're lending to the Lord, and I will repay you, Brady. You teach your people. If you make, take care of the greatest pain in your city, if you even know what the greatest pain in your city is, and you're willing to step to the front of the line, he said, you'll never lack for resources. You never will. We have never lacked for resources for what we're doing at Mary's Home. By God's grace now, not by our ingenuity, by God's grace, we've never lacked for resources. And we're about to buy some more apartment complexes. We're about to do some more things. We're about to possibly buy some land down there. I mean, we're about to get an unbelievable deal on a piece of property. And every time the Lord puts these things in front of me, he says, you give to the poor, you lend it to me, Brady. Go out to the margins of your culture. I'll take care of you. All right, here's the second thing. I can go on and on about this, all right, but I have like seven minutes left. Number two, (laughs) belonging. If you want to see lost people come to your church, if you want to to see the harvest plentiful, belonging will often precede believing. Now listen very carefully. Pastors, I've gone to all the conferences you've gone to, and they have taught us for 25 years that you do, do things to get people saved, and then you create small groups to disciple them. That's been the model. And, and there's a lot of validity to that. that. That works. Let me tell you something about the culture we're working in now. Their tribal ties are much stronger outside the church than they are in. They don't trust the community of the church, first of all. They're very suspicious of the community of the local church. They think it's fake. They think it's built on, on, on thin ideas. And so they would rather go run a marathon with their buddies on Sunday than come to church and hang out with people that they don't trust. They would rather go do justice issues with people, and not, no mention of God. They just rather go do good things outside the church because they don't trust the community of the church. And we have to do a better job of allowing people who don't believe like we believe to belong to a community that we do believe in. We have to create space for them to belong to us long before they believe like us. So pastors, how do we do that? Well, now, pastor, are you saying that you let... Uh, unbelievers lead and influence? No, and that's not what I'm talking about. You can allow people to be a part of an authentic biblical community without giving them leadership influence. But we have to allow space for people to come into our communities, creating groups especially, that, that build community before they believe because believing will, will happen a long time after they feel like they belong now in our culture. They want to know first, can I belong to this church 
then maybe I'll believe like that church. But there is such a loneliness in our culture right now. Listen carefully. People are desperately lonely. And they're dying for authentic relationships. They can't find it in the church. They're looking for it everywhere. That's why they're hooking up on Tinder. That's why they're, they're doing stupid stuff on Instagram. That's why they're, they're longing for anything to make them feel like they're connected somewhere. So the church has got to be aware of how desperate the need is in our culture to feel like they belong. One of the practical things we, we did here about a year ago, you see how big our place is. We got a big old building, and I, I you know, I, it's a it's a problem for us. When we have conferences, it's awesome. On Sunday, it's a reason for people not to come here. It's too big. I hear that everywhere. Pastor Ray, I hear good things about New Life. I said, well, you should come. That's nah, too big. Well, I mean, the Broncos game is sold out. They're going there, like eighty thousand people. I never hear that though. I never hear anybody say, you know what? If the Broncos stadium was only like fifteen hundred. I would go to those Bronco games, but it's so big, though. You know, it's just too big. I don't ever hear that. Why? I mean, it's just a, it's a bad excuse, number one. I mean, I don't get into it too much. But what, what I did realize is that people do feel disconnected when they come here. So the section you're sitting in right now, we divided our church up into 200-part sections. And we call them section communities. I think we've got a breakout on this today. Is that right, today? Or we did it yesterday, get the podcast. For, um, but we divide it. We're very intentional about creating community space. We have, after every service, we have potlucks here. Every service. Every Sunday. Every service. After the 9 o'clock, potlucks are happening in room. People are bringing food to the church to have with their people are sitting. They provide most of the food. We're providing very little of the food now. We provide space and some drinks maybe. I see people every Sunday, and we're, we're a 10,000-member church. I see people bringing their casseroles across the parking lot. They're so happy. Crockpots. Remember the church you grew up in? That's what we did every Sunday, once a month, right, in the good weather? Everybody, my mom would have that potato stuff, all gratin stuff. Here, our big old giant 10,000 megachurch. We got little people with crockpots walking in. So happy. But why? Because they found community. Every Sunday after every service, there are 30 to 100 people meeting in some room here, eating together, hanging out. Food. Because we know this, they have to belong sometimes before they believe. And if you don't let them belong, they're not going to believe like you believe. You have to let them belong first. Create intentional space to belong, and you'll find belief happen. All right? Next thing. One more thing. One thing. More uh, quick thing. Yeah, number, four, number three. I'm going to go over time, and I'm sorry. Uh, not really, but I, I'm just telling you. All right, <clears throat> number three. Uh, number three, sincere worship. Listen very carefully. And we're about to talk about this again in our breakouts. So that's why I can go fast through a couple of these, because we're about to have an hour-long breakout where we're going to go dig deeper on some of this. But number three is very important for you to catch. Sincere worship will be more attractive than religious gimmicks. Listen, you're not going to outmarket the world, okay? We can't outdo the world. I'm not saying we can't be creative and innovative and inspirational. No, that's fine. Absolutely, all that's fine. But I just got back from Disney with my two teenagers, and I just know so many churches that are trying to be Disney every Sunday, and they do it pretty good, by the way. <laughs> they rock at Disney. It's very expensive, but it is amazing, right? It's amazing. Happiest place on the earth. 
It's the most expensive place on the earth, too. So I know who's happy. They're happy. I'm not happy. I know why they're happy. They're raking in money, my money. So sincere worship, though. Listen, you know what people are really looking for? They don't, they, 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 they're grateful for a good cup of coffee. But let's, look, come on, let's be honest. The man makes better coffee than we do out, okay? There's a lot better coffee out there. We, we do a good job. We don't want bad coffee. I mean, it's good coffee. Not amazing coffee, but it's getting good, you know. But I'm just saying we can't, that's, why are we spending so much time on that? What people are wanting to know is, do y'all really believe what you th- say you believe? Are y'all really living like Jesus? Are y'all, are, are y'all pa- listen, passion is our friend. Sincerity is our friend. Cool is our enemy. They can sniff that out. Being cool, being hip is not, is not attractive to them. They, they already have been around cool and hip and their hearts are empty. So when they come here and they see cool and hip and leave with the same empty heart, they, it doesn't feed what's, what's broken. What's broken is their heart is empty. Their heart is away from God. Every time I get tempted, I've never really been accused of being cool, so that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, I really haven't. I don't really think I'm that cool, and I got a little belly I'm trying to work off, and I'm, I work, you know, walk all the time, I eat bad, and so it, it really keeps me from being cool. And I appreciate it. I think it's my, the thorn in my side is fried chicken. And I, uh, I'm not sure, like Paul, low Lord, I don't pray as hard as Paul did for it to be relieved from me because I like fried chicken. All right, so let me go back. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Every time I get tempted, though, and we do have resources in a big church so we can be tempted to be that, I go back and read this passage, okay? Very familiar to all of us who are in church. But can we read it again? as a reminder of what caused people to come to Christ in a very pagan culture 2,000 years ago? Now, when we read this, see if there's any gimmicks here. See if there's anything tricky or cool in this passage. Not. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, sound doctrine, and to the fellowship. They were committed to being with them. They, they enjoyed the community. In other words, there was authentic community there. And the breaking of bread, which is communion, by the way, the Lord's table. They love coming and celebrating the resurrection. It was the agape love feast, joy time, celebratory time of theirs when they remembered that their Messiah had died and was resurrected and that he was coming again with a kingdom that had no end. That was their celebratory time. And to prayer. They love to pray over the sick. Lay hands on one another. Pray over one another. Pray, pray, pray. The Spirit of God would come among them. See anything gimmicky about any of that? Nothing tricky about any of that. And everyone was filled with awe. You know what that word means? That there was this fearful expectation that God could interrupt their scheduled plans and do something miraculous. And many wonders, and because they were filled with that expectation, look what happened. And because of that, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. So there was the, the word spread around the community that in this authentic place of community that the poor were being taken care of. And, and they said, verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now here's the, here's the, here's the key. Have you seen anything tricky there? Any gimmicks? No, it was a, it was a, a commitment to the faith that was sincere. This is what our world's looking for right now. They're looking for people who live out what they teach and believe. A commitment to their faith that was sincere. 
that, that had tangible proof, fruit. And then look what happened. And the Lord, I love that part, by the way. Who added to their number daily? The Lord got involved and added to their number daily. Isn't that like what we want? Real quickly, three Sundays ago, a guy came to our church, and we, we have a lot of stuff to do around here, so the courts send us convicted criminals when, they are given their, when their sentence is community service. Our church is one of the options because we let them do stuff around here, and we, we take care of them. So a guy who had never been to church hardly, maybe once for Easter, once for Christmas, got convicted of some petty crime here in town. The judge said, you have you can do, you had to get this many hours of community service. And he looked down his list of options. New Life Church was one of them. So they call one of our team that oversees that. This guy shows up on a Sunday to put, basically to take trash out. That's what he was doing. But he sits in the back of the room while we're going through the Nicene Creed. He had never heard Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He never heard that. Whoa. For your sake and for our salvation, you came down from heaven. He had never heard that. He's picking up trash because he got in trouble. He tells a guy next to him, he goes, I have never heard that. Jesus did what? For us and for our salvation. Wow. I want salvation, he said. Well, we'd love to pray with you. We pray for him. Two nights later at our membership class, he shows up. He joined the church Tuesday night. Joined the church. Now, I didn't do any, there was not anything gimmicky about it. I was reciting the creed. And he said, I want salvation. That's the Lord adding to our number. And that guy, he, Tuesday night he's walking around, he's walking around back here going, uh, you know, could we, we provide places for them to serve? He says, I want to serve. Uh, I want to serve here. Well, don't you need to finish your community service first? Yeah, I probably need to finish my community service first. <laughs> I love that story. All right, here's the fourth thing, last thing, and I'm finished. Our personal witness has never been more important. Pastors, please listen to me. The reason our churches are not winning the lost is because we're not winning the lost. My wife and I have made a commitment for years. Just in the last few months, we've led three or four people to the Lord. I, I, don't, I forget, three or four, who have shown up at our house for various reasons. I don't tell my church this. I don't brag about these things. I don't, tell, I don't tell, go around telling people that I just led someone to Christ. I, we, it's just naturally what Pam and I do. We just lead people to Christ all the time. We're not out accosting people on sidewalks with tracks. We're inviting them into our home for whatever reason, for some valid reason. And while they're there, we get to know them. We talk to them. They see something about us. Questions arise. Conversations start. Weeks later sometimes... I mean, they're sitting all around us, people we've led to the Lord here. They come to church on Sunday. We know them. We led them to the Lord. Now they're in the church. And I know I cannot give away what's not really happening in my life. We can teach on evangelism, but if I'm not living it out, I can only teach on it. I can't impart it. We can only impart who we are. We can teach, we can, I, I, we can teach knowledge, but we can only impart who we are. And if we're not out being a personal witness for Jesus ourselves, if we have cocooned ourselves in some kind of spiritual utopian environment somewhere, and if we're not out in the world, like Christine, when she said that last night, I went, thank God she said that. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding us we have to be like Christ, but in the world. 
as witnesses to the world. I, I think inviting people, we, we've taught our church to, to just invite them to church, invite them to church, invite them to church. But inviting people to church is nice, but that's not evangelism. And we have taught our people that inviting people to church to an event is evangelism. That's not. Inviting people to Jesus is evangelism. And we cannot outsource evangelism. And we, it starts with us. A lot of times, even as pastors, well, we're not comfortable doing that evangelistic message, so I'll bring in the, the trick pony for their one trick. Maybe they'll get some people saved. And we're going to talk about that later today, about what soteriology really is and what it's not. But here's the bottom line is this. I'm going to read one scripture, and I'm going to pray over you. And I've gone way over my time, but it's my conference, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Nobody, none of the other speakers can do that. Eugene, you can't do that. But by the way, you, you, can you all just welcome Eugene show with us today? We're so glad. <laughs> so happy. We're, I'm very excited about you being here, Eugene. I can't wait to hear our luncheon today and, and your message tonight. But don't go long. I'm joking. All right, Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to pray together, okay? This is the passage I want to read over all of us. Come follow me, Jesus said. And I'll send you out to fish for people. Now, we, we say this over our church all the time, but I'm praying it now over pastors. I'm praying this over my life. You know what one of the benefits of following Jesus is? that you have a built-in desire to go fish for people. And I really, that's the whole idea of this whole conference today. I'm, I'm praying today that God would awaken in us a fresh vision and passion for going to fish for people. Last night I was reminded, why did I become a pastor? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why. I love seeing people come to Christ, be discipled, their lives turned around. Oh, yeah, Lord. That's why I didn't do it for any other reason. And this passage, the Lord reminds us today, come, follow me. Just follow Jesus again. I want to get back to the simplicity of that as a pastor, right? Just follow him. Just wake up every day and my prayer is, Lord, what are you doing today? Father, how can I follow you today? This morning I was driving to school with my two teenagers. It's 7.30 in the morning. They're teenagers. They're tired. I said, guys, can I just pray together? And we do this every morning. Sometimes we'll recite the creed together. Sometimes we'll just pray. But this morning I said, Lord, what are you doing in Abram's life? I said, I'm praying this. He's right next to me. I said, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you show Abram today what you're doing in his world? Father in heaven, would you show Callie today what you're doing in her world? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you... Give them eyes to see what you're doing in their world. And Father, would you give them the courage to participate and cooperate with you and what you're doing in their world today. And they got out and went to their public schools this morning into a, running across the parking lot into their public school and the door shut and I'm alone with the Lord. The Lord said, now pray it over yourself. Listen, pastors listen to me every day it's, it's not any more complicated than this holy spirit what are you doing today what are you doing today in my city in my church in the supermarket that i'm going to walk through what are you doing the lord give me ears to hear what you're doing and lord give me the courage the faith to participate with you today.
Can we just pray that together? Come follow me. Come follow me, Jesus said. And I'll send you out as fishers of men. That's my evangelism strategy, by the way. You want to boil it down? That's my evangelism strategy right there for my entire church. I'm going to teach my church how to follow Jesus because the natural byproduct of that is they'll go out and go fish for men on their own. They will. That's my strategy right there. You want not, that's a five hours of seminary teaching I just saved you right there. Now, you need to do the seminary teaching as well. But can we just start? Can we just hold? Can you stand? Let's stand together. This I know I've kept you long. I've kept you 10 minutes longer than I should have. Can we just turn our hands toward heaven today? I, I confess before you today that I have, at times, gone through the pastoral motions. But I know this, that I cannot sustain that for very long unless I come back to the real reason why I started. So Father, today would you remind all of us in this room why we're in pastoral ministry? Why do we sing songs on the stage? Why do we preach sermons? Why do we counsel people in our office? Why do we perform weddings and funerals? Why do we go to hospitals? Why do we do what we do? Father, I thank you that it's about following you. And I pray today that it would just be simplified in every man and woman's heart in this room. Come, follow me, Jesus said. I will send you out as fishers of men. Lord, today we make a commitment before you to follow you again, to listen for your voice, to be sheep of your pasture, to follow you again. And Father, I bless your name. I'm grateful today for that privilege of following you. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen.